Fukushima plus two. Green Japanese still battling the nuclear mafia. Today, Monday, March 11th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Many thought the Fukushima nuclear disaster would usher in an era of renewable energy in Japan, but two years later, it hasn't turned out that way. We'll hear why Japan's tough energy dilemmas persist. And later, families fleeing the war in Syria find some relief in refugee camps. People tell you, is at least I'm not experiencing shelling anymore. At least my kids are not hovering under the bed covers, screaming with fright. Plus, we meet the refugee kids who make up a soccer team in Arizona. We got Andy, Souvenir, Yusuf, Ahmad, Tutu, uh, Abraham, Anthony. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Today, you may have seen some of the pictures of what happened on this day in Japan two years ago. It was hard not to gape again. For Japanese, for whom the images are indelible, the remembrances were more austere. Voices went silent across much of Japan at 2.46 p.m. today, local time. That's the moment when the strongest recorded earthquake in the country's history hit just offshore and sent a massive tsunami toward the northeast coast. Thousands were killed, 300,000 displaced, and it set off a triple meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The disaster was the worst in Japan since World War II, and it prompted a polarizing debate over the country's future, especially over the issue of energy. Fukushima pushed many to rethink nuclear power and take clean energy much more seriously. But two years later, many Japanese say they're stuck with nuclear, whether they like it or not. Reporter Joe Rubin has our story. In the western Japanese city of Fukuoka, three 25-foot towers rise above a small park. They're an odd sort of windmill with small blades surrounded by a disc. And their inventor says there's another big difference. It can rotate by itself to face the wind. Yuji Oya is a professor at Fukuoka's Kyushu University. And his work is part of a burst of activity in renewable energy since the Fukushima disaster two years ago. In his lab, Oya uses a wind tunnel and ultraviolet cameras to show me how his turbines create micro-low pressure areas to concentrate wind energy. Oya says what he calls his wind lens is two to three times more efficient than conventional turbines and friendlier to birds. But the engineer says he's motivated by more than just a passion for green energy. He wants Japan to avoid nuclear energy forever. As an engineer and researcher, I can't say one thing, okay. All the products, technological products, fails unexpectedly. And as Fukushima made clear, the consequences of a nuclear failure can be catastrophic. Polls say upwards of 70% of Japanese share Oya's anti-nuclear sentiments. And for a while, at least, so did its government. Two years ago, nuclear power provided roughly 30% of Japan's electricity, heading for a planned 50%. But after Fukushima, the government almost immediately shut down all of its remaining reactors for a thorough safety review, and it soon announced that it would phase out nuclear power altogether by the 2030s. 
Instead, the country would invest heavily in renewables, financed largely by a new European-inspired law setting a fixed price for green power and requiring utilities to buy it. Since then, Japan's green energy sector has exploded. Advocates say two gigawatts of new generating capacity have been installed. That's roughly equal to two nuclear plants. But late last year, a strange thing happened. Campaign rallies like this one in Tokyo saw the resurgence of the conservative pro-nuclear liberal Democratic Party. The LDP trounced every other party in national elections. Analysts say economic troubles played a big role in the outcome, troubles brought on in part by the high cost of replacing all that lost nuclear power. Whatever the causes, Japan is now facing a schizophrenic political situation with a population that's at once pro and anti-nuclear. That contradiction was on display recently in a meeting hall about 50 miles from the ruined Fukushima plant, where local businesses set up tables to draw attention to their post-meltdown struggles. I met a farmer, Toshiyuku Ozaki, who grows peaches and apples, but who's only serving up samples of peach juice. Exceptional. Ozaki told me his peaches are tested regularly by the government and are fine now, but his apples are still too radioactive to sell. For Izaki, the dangers of nuclear power couldn't be more real. He's lost much of his livelihood, and thousands of his neighbors who live closer to the plant have lost everything. But despite his deep concerns, the farmer told me through a translator that he believes nuclear power is simply necessary for the Japanese economy. It would be good to not rely on nuclear energy. However, the reality is that it may be quite difficult to shut down all power plants across Japan. The hall where I met Izaki was playing host to a big nuclear safety conference. It was full of tough talk about the need to improve standards and change the entrenched culture of complacency that everyone agrees played a big part in the Fukushima disaster. But there was also talk about a future here that includes nuclear power. For their part, opponents say Japan's nuclear ambivalence is about more than just economic need. Many say the country's political and economic establishments are still under the sway of a powerful nuclear lobby, what activists often call Japan's nuclear mafia. And the contempt seems mutual. Renewable energy technology is very inefficient and unstable. Masami Hasegawa is an energy analyst with a powerful business lobby known as Kendanren, whose members include Japan's seven nuclear utilities. Asagawa says his organization is all for the development of better renewable power. But, he says, the new law supporting renewables through guaranteed revenue is inconsistent with capitalism. The strong intervention to the market. It's a communist policy. It's a communist policy, Hasegawa says, because it fixes the price of energy. So far, Japan's new prime minister, Shinzo Abe, has made no move to roll back the country's post-Fukushima renewable energy goals. But he has reversed the government's course on nuclear, promising to reopen closed plants and maybe even build new ones. That shift back towards nuclear could take some of the momentum out of the renewables juggernaut, except for one thing. Japan's new nuclear regulatory agency has proposed new safety standards, and they're so strict that it could take years for the country's nuclear plants to be upgraded to meet them. So nearly two years after Fukushima, Japan's national tug-of-war between nuclear and renewables is still very much unresolved.
But at least some backers of green power here are confident about the future. I think the miracle uh, does not happen abruptly. That's Yamashita Noriaka of the Institute for Sustainable Energy Policy, or ICIP, a green energy think tank. Noriaka says the debate has really just begun. We just started the energy discussion after Fukushima. So we need uh, to be patient. We can change in Japan in the long future. For The World, I'm Joe Rubin, Tokyo. Joe's report was produced with help from the International Center for Journalists. You can revisit all of our coverage of Japan's tsunami and nuclear crisis at theworld.org. The hotline between North and South Korea went dead this morning. The North cut it off. Pyongyang is upset about South Korea's military exercises with the United States and about new United Nations sanctions imposed in response to North Korea's nuclear program. North Korea has even announced that it's scrapping the 1953 ceasefire that ended the Korean War. So tensions are high, even if no one is seriously concerned about war breaking out. But the shutting down of that hotline got us thinking, where are their hotlines still in place and how are they used anyway? Harold Thor Egelson wrote the book on the history of hotlines, or at least had a paper published while he was a student of diplomacy. He's now director of the Ekurreri Museum in Iceland. So, uh, first of all, what do you know about this hotline, this red phone between North Korea and South Korea? What is it? Well, it's it's most probably a similar device as has been established between states who have nuclear capabilities. Uh, I sincerely doubt that it is a direct phone line between the, the two states. It's more likely to be a, some kind of a teletext device as they were originally established. Right, a teletext device. I mean, that goes against everybody's conventions and notions of what these hotlines are all about. We mostly think of them as phones, but... The most famous hotline came directly out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That would be the one between the White House and the Kremlin. Uh, Take us back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. What were they using? Well, they didn't have a direct link, and that was the main problem. They they found out during those fateful days in October that they didn't have a means to get messages quickly. Even the Soviet embassy in the U.S. got the message through the media. I mean, your paper on the history of hotlines describes how the Russians would basically call up Western Union. And I have this image of, you know, the cable guy with the pillbox hat, you know, basically this major player trying to avert nuclear war. Yeah, uh, they were using, you know, bike couriers to, to get messages to the, to the Soviet embassy. I, perhaps it's, it was good that the, the, the courier on the, on the bike didn't know how important part he played on the Cold War. And just thank God that someone didn't hit him while he was biking around with those messages. Yeah, really, thank goodness. So today, here we are in the 21st century. What is the state of the hotline? Like between uh, Washington and Moscow, are they actually, there are phones. I mean, I I, I think uh, President Obama calls uh, Putin from time to time. Yes, of course. Uh, naturally, the, the telephone is an, an important tool of, of diplomacy. And, and fortunately, people like Obama and Putin call each other up on the phone. But not, not on... Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I would advise against it if Russia and the US are in a state of emergency and, and are, are considering going to war. I would think that they wouldn't call each other directly because it's, it might create a misunderstanding or misapprehension. And, and what do you recommend? Email these days? <laughs> I, would, I would recommend that we wouldn't come to the situation where, where we would have to decide whether to send an email about let's not go to war. And, and that's, that's probably uh, 
in the North Korean situation. So I it, think they're using this this uh, hotline as states have sometimes done as a simple as a simple to to send a signal to the world that things are, are, are this bad. We are even severing our means of secure hotlines. But don't you think in some ways the, the presence of a hotline between countries where there is tension, doesn't that ultimately show that these countries with these at the brink situations don't really want to go to war. They're looking for kind of an out. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're doing everything to avoid going to war. Well, thanks for talking with us. Harold Thor Egelson, director of the Ekoreri Museum in Iceland. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Hello. Uh, hello, De- hello, Dimitri. Listen, I-, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. <laughs> Yeah. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know A new study published in the Lancet Medical Journal is generating some buzz today. It's about mummies. Researchers CAT scanned more than 100 ancient mummies from four separate places around the world. These corpses were up to 4,000 years old, and they found classic signs of what most of us think of as a modern affliction heart disease. The mummies, you see, had clogged arteries. So is heart disease just an inherent part of human aging? Or is it linked also to things like smoking cigarettes and eating too much junk food? Or both, maybe. We'll talk with one of the study's lead researchers later in the program, and we'll identify the name of the chain of volcanic islands where one of the mummies came from. The islands form a long arc in the northern Pacific Ocean that reaches out from the Alaskan Peninsula all the way to the Kamchatkan Peninsula. The islands at the westernmost tip of this chain are part of Russia. There. We just slipped you today's GeoQuiz. Now name the island chain if you can. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Since it happened in December, we've been actively following developments on the show in India surrounding the gang rape and murder of a young woman on a New Delhi bus. Well, today, a new and disturbing twist in the ongoing trial of the defendants in that case. The alleged ringleader of the men on that bus was found dead in his prison cell. The authorities say 33-year-old Ram Singh committed suicide by hanging himself with a handmade rope. Singh was being tried along with four other men on charges of rape, murder and abduction. A sixth suspect was on trial as a juvenile. The BBC's Sotek Biswas is in Delhi. Uh, Remind us, please, how this man, Ram Singh, was thought to be involved in the brutal gang rape and murder case. Well, he was uh, the guy who was driving the bus. Though they took turns on that fateful night, two of them took turns to drive the bus. So he was the prime suspect. So the case, as we know, really struck a chord with Indian citizens uh, and led to widespread protests. How has the public there reacted to this news of the apparent suicide? 
you know, it's interesting that a lot of people have actually said, you know, and I'm talking about the social media space and, and things in the public, that, you know, this man would have been executed anyway. So there's very little sympathy for, for the man. And so, you know, in terms of the public reaction, it's kind of muted in the sense that there is no outrage about the fact that uh, this man died in the prison. But what people are asking is that, how could this happen to such a high-profile prisoner? Right, which is one of the questions, presumably, that uh, uh, Singh's lawyer is asking. How could this have happened as a suicide? And so is his family. That's true. In fact, they are convinced that uh, Ram Singh was murdered inside the prison. And why are they convinced that he was murdered? Well, that's not very clear. They say that a lot of prisoners attacked Ram Singh and the other five accused when then taken to the prison for the first time. This is not uncommon in Indian prisons. Um, I've been to a lot of Indian prisons, and jailers have told me that people under trials in rape cases or people who are being convicted in rape cases uh, are, are the worst off. I mean, in the U.S., certain perpetrators and their alleged crimes, when those people get in jail, for example, child sex offenders, they are magnets for other inmates who intend to teach them a lesson. Uh, you're saying that rape is uh, that crime in Indian prisons. If you're a rapist or an alleged rapist, you're going to get attacked or worse? Yeah, that's what most of prison officials tell me, that if you're a rapist, then, then you get the worst treatment from other inmates in the prison. Sotik, based on what you've read and seen and heard, do you think it was a murder or a suicide? Well, you know, it's very, very difficult to say, but suicide do happen even after they are kept in cells with two, three other inmates. I've heard really uh, bizarre accounts from jail officials that there are various ways they try to take their lives, like by tying knots with the iron grills of the gates, the cell gate. So there have been suicides inside cells with co-inmates sleeping through it. It has happened in the past. So what happens now? Will the trial just continue uh, as scheduled? Well, the trial, I think, will obviously continue as scheduled. What will be interesting to see is if the court actually passes a directive to the uh, prison authorities to tighten the security or even, you know, who knows, uh, move them to another prison. Uh, but having said that, Tihar remains the best bet. It's one of the prisons which is known to treat uh, prisoners better than many other prisons in India. And what about the judicial process? Because now the the man who's likely the kingpin of this whole case is removed. We don't know what his testimony is going to be, do we? Of course, the trial is going on. It's in camera, so we don't know the details. But the early confession that he gave to the police, I've read some parts of those testimonies, and they're really, really grisly in detail. But the fact is, in India, often during the trial, the person will retract and say that this confession was extracted under duress and so on. We don't know what was happening in the trial, but um, I think that the fast-track court will finish its trial by May. The BBC's Delhi correspondent, Sotik Biswas, thank you. Thank you. Last week, Venezuelans bid farewell to their president, Hugo Chavez, who succumbed to cancer. Now they're preparing for a snap election to replace him. There's not much time. The vote's scheduled for April 14th. The candidates are opposition leader Enrique Capriles and Nicolas Maduro, Chavez's handpicked vice president and now interim president. Venezuelans are still in mourning for Chavez. And as John Otis reports from Caracas, that could give Maduro a huge advantage. The winner of next month's election will finish the six-year term that Chavez won in October, at a time when he was insisting he was cancer-free. In that race, Chavez easily defeated Capriles. This time around, Capriles will face Maduro, a former bus driver, union leader, and foreign minister. 
At a boisterous rally in Caracas yesterday, Maduro warned that a Capriles victory would slam the brakes on Chavez's socialist revolution. He promised to faithfully carry the Chavez torch into next month's election. Maduro lacks the bombast and charisma of Chavez, and in normal circumstances, he'd be vulnerable to a challenge. Despite vast oil wealth, Venezuela is facing food shortages, a devalued currency, and one of the highest homicide rates in the world. Yet Maduro is considered the heavy favorite. Flush with petrodollars, the government can outspend the opposition during the short campaign. It also controls the main TV stations, and they're filled with emotional tributes to Chávez. Chávez es un pueblo. Chávez somos millones. Tú también eres Chávez, mujer venezolana. What's more, the government is drawing out the mourning process. Chávez's funeral was on Friday, but his body is still on display at a military chapel. Huge lines form every day and have become a rallying point for Chavistas. All of this is designed to drum up a huge sympathy vote for Maduro. And it puts Capriles in a bind, since criticizing Maduro might seem like an attack on Chavez. Indeed, the playing field seems so slanted that there was speculation that Capriles might sit out next month's vote. But the opposition has learned from past mistakes. In 2005, it boycotted legislative elections. That turned Venezuela's National Assembly into a rubber stamp for Chávez, allowing him to consolidate his power. Yo voy a luchar con ustedes, con todos ustedes. On Sunday, Capriles announced he would run for president, even though back-to-back -back losses might destroy his political career. As one person said today, Capriles, they are taking you to a slaughterhouse. You are going to be lowered into a meat grinder. But how am I not going to fight? How are we not going to fight? This super-abbreviated campaign will likely be far more intense and negative than last year's race when Capriles tried to maintain an upbeat tone. The fireworks have already started. On Sunday, Capriles accused Maduro of hiding behind Chavez's dead body, saying he lacks the courage to campaign on his own merits. For his part, Maduro called Capriles a fascist who was insulting the crystalline, pure image of Comandante Chavez. For The World, I'm John Otis, Caracas. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a refugee family's voyage from Syria to Greece. And later, the joy of coaching soccer when you're living as an undocumented immigrant. Helping with the soccer, it's like a relief for us, you know. It's like freedom in a way because... It makes us feel like we're living normal. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A single refugee story is heartbreaking. A person has to leave their home, not because they want to, because they have to, or else they might get killed. They don't know where they're going. They don't even know if they'll ever get back home again. Now, multiply that by a million. That's the story of Syria. The United Nations said the number of Syrian refugees who fled their country officially hit one million last week. And Antonio Guterres, head of the U.N.'s refugee agency, the UNHCR, says that could triple by the end of this year. He made the comment while on a visit to Turkey, where some 190,000 Syrians have sought refuge. Others have wound up in Lebanon and Jordan, as well as elsewhere in the Middle East and even Europe. Melissa Fleming is the UNHCR's chief spokesperson currently in Ankara. She says Syrians who make it to one of the 17 refugee camps across Turkey get to stay in an orderly and safe place. The one thing nice that people tell you in the camps is at least I'm not experiencing shelling anymore. At least my kids are not hovering under the bed covers screaming with fright. That said, most of them still have family members back in Syria. I was in a tent Tent after tent, actually, where there are TVs in the tent with Al Jazeera in the background. And they're all watching for news about not only their homeland, but the developments in the fighting, whether it's reached their hometown. And and they're worrying very much about their relatives back home. And so once they've been in the camp for a while, what's their mental state as they wait and they wait for these situations to change and those situations don't change? I can tell you they're grateful for the refuge they've been granted in the neighboring countries but they are traumatized, they're worried, they're concerned. And, you know, they see their country on the television pictures being obliterated, completely destroyed, and their relatives and friends gone missing. It just keeps getting worse. And, of course, the grievance, the worry, the fear doesn't leave them. Melissa, I understand many refugees actually skip the camps and head straight for urban areas without being registered. Obviously, that creates its own set of problems. Can you give us a sense of the number of people who have actually done that so far and how they're living? Well, in in Turkey, Lebanon, and in Jordan, probably at least half and all in Lebanon of refugees are in towns and cities. It does pose greater challenges. It's more difficult to assist people because they're much more dispersed And many urban refugees have not really come forward. New development in Turkey, before they would only really count and recognize those refugees who went to camps in a new move, they are now registering, with our assistance, refugees who are in towns and cities, enabling them to get free health care, to get aid. Many refugees feel much more comfortable in a city environment. They come from cities. They want to move to a city. Melissa, on one hand, uh, as a spokesperson with the UNHCR, you have to carefully stay across these numbers of refugees. You need to know what they need, where to open new camps. But at an even more stark level for you, what does this number, one million, and the threat of three million by year's end, what does that number symbolize for you? It's a mirror into a country that is unraveling. The violence has become so terrible the destruction so vast that the country is emptying itself of its people. For those who flee across the borders, at least they're safe. Those who remain inside, many of them are also displaced. As many as three million people inside the country have fled their homes and they're running from one place to the next. So it's it's a really terrible and escalating violence uh, situation inside Syria. And that is the reflection on the million people who fled over the borders. 
Melissa Fleming, the spokesperson for the UNHCR, speaking with us from Ankara, the Turkish capital. Thank you, Melissa. It was a pleasure. The majority of refugees who fled Syria have sought refuge in neighboring countries like Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. But more than 30,000 are now in Europe. That's the second largest refugee group in the European Union after Afghans. Most arrive in Greece, a country going through its own turmoil. Marine Olivezi reports on one Syrian family freshly arrived on the island of Lesvos, just five miles off the Turkish coast. The Syrians are crouched down, putting the laces back in their shoes. This family of 16 has just been released from the local police station. Did you eat in the prison? Did they give you food regularly? Bad. Bad food. Mm -hmm. We try to support refugees to help if there is any need outside. Ifilet Soudi, a local activist, checks up on them. And how many days you stayed in? Uh, uh, four days with my family. With the kids? With the kids. Baby, baby, why not baby? How old is this? Some months. Ten, Ten months. Ten months, so With all these kids, they stayed uh, four days. It's crazy. Eh? But not surprising. Greek authorities routinely detain undocumented migrants and refugees. Syrians are no exception. The family crossed into Greece from Turkey on a rubber boat five days earlier. Once on the island, they walked for hours before reaching a village. Then they turned themselves in to the police. That's the only way to get the form they're holding now. It's a notice that gives them 30 days to leave Greece or file for asylum. But more important, it's their way off the island. They can't get on a ferry to Athens without the white paper. Three policemen on the dock screen passengers. They stop the family. The adults hand over the documents. Everyone gets through, except for 17-year-old Abed and his older brother. The officer stares at Abed and then at his paper. The brothers grow anxious. Is there a problem? There's a difficult problem. It says female. It's listed Abed as a female. That mistake could keep him off the boat, but the officers let him go. The boat is mostly empty. Four-year-old Rina runs up and down the deck, clutching a doll whose hair has turned into dreadlocks. The others fall on their seats, relieved and exhausted. Umnur says she could sleep for a week. They left Syria two months ago. The family is Palestinian, but they've lived in Damascus for four generations. Umnur says Palestinians were better off in Syria than anywhere else in the Middle East. Our life in Damascus is very good. Thanks for God. Better than Lebanon, better than any city for Palestine. Syria is uh, our house, our job, schools for uh, our children. But we lost all this. The day they lost it all was December 16, 2012. That's when rockets hit Yarmouk, the Palestinian neighborhood in Damascus, and killed one of their relatives. Most Syrian Palestinians tried not to get dragged into the civil war, but when it hit their neighborhood, they were forced to take sides. Hundreds fled. Umnur and her family now hope to reach Sweden. Sweden and Germany are the only European countries that grant automatic protection to Syrian refugees. They hope to get free housing and health care there, something Turkey couldn't offer. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few minutes, we will arrive at the port of Piraeus. Passengers are kindly requested to disembark. The family wakes After up the, the next morning in the port of Athens. The 16 refugees get off the boat 
and joined the ranks of a fast-growing Syrian community in the Greek capital. Human Rights Watch says nearly 10,000 Syrians have entered Greece since 2011, but by the end of 2012, only six of them have received refugee protection here. Most Syrians don't even try to apply to stay in Greece. The country is in no mood to take in more migrants and refugees, so they keep their eyes on their next move, but many get stuck here. At a Syrian cafe in downtown Athens, the family's oldest son, Ayman, indulges in treats from back home, Arabic coffee and a water pipe. A few days earlier, he told me getting to Greece was the hardest part. Now I ask if he still feels that way. <laughs> For surviving, it's the hardest, but it's not the hardest part. <laughs> no, I didn't expect that. He says they didn't have a full picture of what they'd face in Greece. Not even half picture. We are still thinking what are we going to do. We don't have any idea right now. His family needs up to $30,000 to get fake documents and tickets for all of them to fly to Sweden. It would be cheaper to travel by land, but they'd have to cross at least half a dozen borders. With seven children in tow, the odds against them are staggering. European rules require refugees to apply in the country they arrived in, in this case, Greece. But Amen wonders if Sweden recognizes that Syrians are entitled to refugee protection, why can't they just apply at the embassy here? Why make them go through so much to get to Sweden? <laughs> Every day I think about this, and there's no answer. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi, Athens. Marine sent us pictures of that refugee family's voyage. The slideshow is at theworld.org. That's also where you'll find photos for our next story. We're going to hit the soccer field and check in with Team Milan. Not the Italian team. No, this club's in Arizona, and it's made up of kids who are refugees. They're from all over the world. Phoenix, Arizona accepts more refugees than nearly any other American city. And the team's coaches come from somewhere else, too. They're undocumented immigrants from Mexico. As reporter Valeria Fernandez of Feet in Two Worlds tells us, the two groups find common ground on the field. Hey, listen up. We're going to win this game, right? Yes! yes. going to play hard. Yes! Miguel Vasquez is shy about his English accent. But when it comes to being a soccer coach, he's never at a loss for words. His players are refugee children, ages 11 to 13, from Burma, Congo, Iraq, Thailand and Afghanistan. They call themselves Team Milan, after Italy's famous club. They've never touched a soccer ball before, so when they come here, as you can see right now, they're having a lot of fun. The enthusiastic players remind Vasquez of his first years in America. His family brought him across the U.S.-Mexican border by foot when he was seven. But he also says that these young refugee stories can be harsher than his own. They suffer more than immigrants because they come from poverty and violence, and many times they have to hide themselves from soldiers that can kill them if they feel like it. Vasquez and his wife Alondra are the team's volunteer coaches, and both are undocumented immigrants from Mexico. In Arizona, they face strict immigration laws and have experienced harsh judgment. In contrast, Phoenix takes in more refugees than nearly any other American city. But the difference in treatment and the immigration debate washes away when these groups get together. 
the focus is on helping these kids fit into their new home. We're doing car washes so we could go to the tournament and get $475. Grafia Karim is 12 years old and arrived from Iraq with his family four years ago. He's the goalkeeper for Team Milan and introduces the rest of the team working the car wash. Uh, we got Andy, Souvenir, Yusuf, um, Ahmad. A local uh, Christian Tutu. group helps with some of the team's expenses, but the car wash helps pay for other costs, like tournament fees, uniforms and shoes, things the kids' parents can't afford. All right, we made, there's 200 in this envelope. There's 163 in this one. And there's $17 in this one. Who's good at math? That's Alondra Vasquez. After the car wash, she drives them to a picnic. She has an old Arizona license from before the state stopped issuing them to undocumented immigrants. Helping with the soccer, it's like a relief for us, you know. It's like freedom in a way because it makes us feel like we're living normal. Vasquez says she feels valued working with the team. And when she thinks about the challenges these young refugees have faced, it makes her own travels about paying rent by cleaning houses seem small. There's one kid here, he's actually playing at the park right now. He shares one pair of shoes with all his brothers. And my husband's like, we got to buy the kid's shoes. And here we are struggling to make our bills and my husband wants to go buy shoes for a kid. Sometimes Vasquez is the only one cheering on the players during their matches because her parents are working. She also supports the players off the field. It's a Statue of Liberty, huh? Yeah, I just have to sketch it first. Oh, okay. You're going to draw the whole thing? Every evening, Vasquez stops by the home of one of the players. His name is Playray. His family, his sisters, his parents are all in Phoenix, now after fleeing Burma. Vasquez often helps one of Playray's sisters, Poe, with her homework. And I have to turn in by tomorrow, so I have to finish by today. Poe is 16 years old, and Vasquez has become her mentor. She teaches her everything, and she teaches her how to behave, how to be good, and then when we don't know how to get there, and he show, she shows her to get there. Vasquez has taken Poe to tour a nearby university, help her enroll in a charter school, and Vasquez is working with Poe with her English. It's important since Poe often translates for her father, who only speaks Kareni. On a recent evening, Poe asked her dad, Torre, what he thought about the legal differences between him as a refugee and Coach Vasquez, who could be deported at any time. <laughs> Torre told his daughter that it's people like Vasquez who've helped his family feel at home in America. He also said that he didn't fault immigrants like Vasquez for crossing the border illegally. They've all migrated to improve their lives. For the world, this is Valeria Fernandez in Phoenix, Arizona. Valeria is with Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. And again, we have pictures of Team Milan at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You hear news and are reminded almost every day, it seems, about how certain behaviors will give you heart disease. Well, today I'm going to share with you news about how mummies got heart disease 
And as far as I know, they weren't smoking or eating junk food. Researchers conducted CT scans of 137 mummies, some up to 4,000 years old, from four separate places around the world, and they found that many had signs of heart disease. Dr. Greg Thomas, medical director of the Heart and Vascular Institute at Long Beach Memorial Center. Dr. Thomas, the puzzling thing is this. If these ancients weren't smoking or eating greasy cheeseburgers, how did they get heart disease? We don't know yet. Um, We're going to look for a culture that doesn't have heart disease. But we found four cultures from ancient mummies. Three were prehistoric cultures, um, including our culture with heart disease. So unfortunately, we're 0 for 5 so far in terms of cultures. And so can you distinguish different diets, what they were eating? Or uh, do you think that it had nothing to do with diet? Well, we found that diet wasn't preventative. That is, none of these diets prevented heart disease or vascular disease in the form of atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. So the diets were quite diverse. There were farmers from um, ancient Peru, farmers from ancient Egypt, um, hunter-gatherers from the Aleutian Islands who lived a traditional lifestyle with marine food, eating seals and sea lions, whales, fish, finding berries, living off the land. And we'd hoped that people who lived off the land and essentially moved back to nature wouldn't have vascular disease, but uh, they certainly did. Three out of the five Aleutians had atherosclerosis and one had blockages in two of her heart arteries, no less. In fact, likely this person might have needed a stent or two if she lived this current day. And she was only 50 years old. So we need to do better finding out why we as current day humans and past humans develop vascular disease and heart disease and stroke. So the Aleutian Islands, that would be our geo answer today, the Aleutian Islands. Is there a message coming out of your study that relates us to those people from 4,000 years ago? They were all at risk. Um, We'd like to believe that if we follow a particular diet that we won't get heart disease. I do believe that some diets are better than others. However, the Mediterranean diet certainly being a good one. But we shouldn't look at this as a cure-all. We're all at risk. And so thus it behooves ourselves to follow what we think is a good diet, to, uh, to not smoke, to exercise, to stay a good weight and keep our blood pressure and cholesterol down. So rather than being fatalistic that we're all in trouble, I think it's better to say we're all at risk. And so it reinforces the need to do the best we can. I think this suggests to researchers that we need to um, look outside the box and find other opportunities to try to prevent heart disease and other causes that we haven't been able to uncover yet. Does it undermine in any way the idea that smoking, obesity, and sedentary lifestyles are risky? Not at all. Actually, the the smoking is interesting. Two of the prehistoric cultures, that is the Aleutians um, living along the beaches in these volcano islands, and then the Native Americans who lived along the Colorado River, They were living uh, long enough ago so that they used the earth to modulate the temperature. They were living in subterranean homes. They were half underground and half above ground. And to keep those warm and to keep light, they would uh, have a fire inside. So two of these cultures then had fire and thus were exposed to a great deal of smoke uh, throughout. Hmm. In fact, women had as much heart disease or much faster disease as men did. So we're wondering that in each of these four cultures, women had the traditional lifestyle of cooking included in their tasks. And so that could have been the challenge then. It could have been modern-day smoking, could have been that exposure to that type of smoke. It must have been pretty wild peering into these corpses from the distant past. Have you ever done anything like this? Um, this is certainly the largest uh, group of CT scans looking for ancient disease. Uh, but it was rather remarkable walking around the Egyptian Museum in Cairo and asking the Egyptologist to take a sarcophagus down and take a mummy out who'd been in there for 3,000 years and take a look inside. And their body's so well-preserved by the scientist priests 3,000 years ago so we can find out insights into why people get heart disease and vascular disease now. 
it was truly remarkable, really, for all of us to use this modern science with uh, the ancient science to keep these bodies present. In 3,000 years, you and I will be stardust, but these people you could almost recognize when you looked at them. Dr. Greg Thomas, a cardiologist and the senior author of a new study that found heart disease in mummies. Dr. Thomas, thanks a lot. You bet. Earlier this year, fans of the UK-based band My Bloody Valentine were ecstatic to hear their favorite alt-rock band of the 1980s were not getting mummified. They were making a comeback, in fact. Fans were so eager, they crashed the band's website the day of the release. One fan chomping at the bit was music journalist Marius Asp in Oslo, Norway. 2013 seems to be the year of the comeback, at least for some of my personal heroes. David Bowie has returned to form after a silent decade, and Destiny's Child, my favorite modern R&B trio, is back as well. But even more surprising is the return of one of the most influential British bands of the 80s and 90s, My Bloody Valentine, who released their epic swan song Loveless in 1991. 22 years later, they're back, and this is what it sounds like. You're listening to Only Tomorrow from MBV, the new album by My Bloody Valentine. One of the seminal alt-rock bands of the late 80s and early 90s, the group led by the eccentric and somewhat enigmatic Kevin Shields. The music is often dubbed shoegaze due to the performers staring at their shoes while on stage, or perhaps more accurately, dream pop. Listening to My Bloody Valentine often feels like being awake in a feverish dream, with walls of syrupy seasick guitars and haunted voices balancing between beauty and white noise, ecstasy and dissolution. MBV does, however, contain some of their most straightforward moments. For instance, the elegant pure pop of In Another Way. Let's have a listen. My Bloody Valentine's influential position in the past decades is comparable to that of the Velvet Underground in the 60s. They didn't sell that many records, but a majority of those who bought them went on to form their own band, as the legend goes. The sonic territory of Kevin Shields remained singular, 22 years after their supposed peak. And the band continues to puzzle, challenge, delight, and most importantly, stay relevant. The mystery remains. Immerse yourself in it. Music contributor Marius Asp of NRK in Oslo, Norway there, talking about the latest from My Bloody Valentine. Great comeback story, that one. So what musician or band do you want to see back on the stage? Where is Brenton Wood when you need him? Tell us what artist or band you want to see come back at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.